Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Alfred Frankowski about his new book, The Post-Racial Limits of Memorialization Towards a Political Sense of Mourning. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Alfred Frankowski, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and African American Studies program at Northeastern Illinois University. His new book is called The Post-Racial Limits of Memorialization Towards a Political Sense of Mourning. And it's actually the first in a new book series by Lexington Books, about the philosophy of race. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, th- this is a fascinating and, and really timely book, I think, um, and speaks obviously to the American context, but also I think much more globally. So it'd be great to hear a bit um, about the project in which the book has, has kind of emerged from. And I suppose you might be able to do that by thinking about the two in- events that introduced the book, uh, the re-election of Barack Obama, and the Trayvon Martin murder. So why were they a, a good starting point for the, uh, for the argument the book wants to make? Yeah, um, so um, the, the book project originally started from um, thinking about um, forgetting and how forgetting uh, plays out in a, um, especially for histories that are affected by extreme violence. Um, but as I was working on, working on that question, um, I started to, um, then think about the way in which, um, we, um, we, we use, uh, um, memory and memorials, um, to try and reconcile, uh, reconcile our past. And within that context, I started to look specifically at anti-black violence in the United States. Um, at the same time, um, I was very uh, I was very aware of how um, the Barack Obama presidency started to become described as a post racial a post racial presidency, and um, the term post racial had been around for quite a while uh, before Barack Obama and questions about post ethnic post ethnic uh, uh, futures and things like that had been around for a while. Um, but what what was interesting, I think, about the Barack Obama presidency and why why that became sort of a, um, uh, important for this work was that whether or not we were there, there were lots of questions about whether or not we were a post racial society, um, and what we meant meant by post racial. Um, are we a post racial society because we are suddenly past race, or are we a post racial society because now we can look at race more critically, and um, all of those questions are are interesting questions to take up, but whether or not they're true, whether or not they're descriptive, um, seems somewhat irrelevant to the fact that um, we are we what was being produced or what we what we're kind of engaged in when we talk about race now is a post racial discourse, and um, so Barack Obama on the one hand signals a way in which we are post racial because we've progressed as a society to think about and handle and, and accept and represent race 
and racial diversity in a multiple in, a, in multiple ways. But that's not the whole story, and that's not the whole way in which the discourse ought to be framed. Um, Trayvon Martin's murder was um, was uh, a uh, also also a, a representation of where we're at when we think about race, which would be in a state of complete denial. Um, so the Trayvon Martin murder re- repeats um, in many ways uh, the, the most extreme forms of racial violence and anti-black violence. And the trial itself acts as a context through which we can see the repetition of um, the ways in which uh, our culture is, is immersed in and sort of entrenched in anti-black violence. So I thought it was very important for us to sort of think about the term post-racial as, as um, doing these two, as, as, as embracing these two sides. Uh, one that is uh, one, on the one hand gesturing towards progress and on the other hand um, signaling that we have uh, not moved very far, if at all, uh, from uh, from our, from that racist past. Yeah, and, and and this really gets to the the core argument of the book, um, which I read as as essentially kind of applying that tension between um, representations of potential post racial uh, societies with uh, the reality through aesthetic productions, aesthetic productions that suggest an inclusive society but in doing so, occlude and, and make opaque people's suffering. And I wonder if you could um, expand or, or perhaps sketch out that um, argument about the role of aesthetic productions in um, replicating these, uh, these forms of, of racial inequality. Yeah, I can, I can, try, I can try and do that in, a, in, in two ways. Um, so um, first, I, I think that sort of thinking about um, post-racial discourse, and just just specifically in terms of how we sort of think about um, when we talk about race in, 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 in our society, when we talk about racism, not necessarily about race, but when we talk about racism, there seems to be um, always a gesture, especially in terms of when we think about uh, 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 extreme violence, there's always a gesture just to say that... Um, on the one hand, right, um, we are not the society that we once were. On the other hand, then to then openly talk about or openly represent the violence, the violence at hand. So when Trayvon Martin was murdered, when Michael Brown was murdered, um, <laughs> I believe that Barack Obama said um, when he made statements about these and when people in general, when they publicly talked about uh, either event, they would say, um, we have a racist past, um, there's much to deal with, but our society has grown a whole lot from that past. And I would like to stop right there, right? At that point, what, what, seems, to be, what, what seems to be going on is that, um, there's a, that, that the a context through which we're going to review Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin suddenly uh, um, is, is in reference to a history but that history is is immediately delinked from the, the 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 representation of the violence itself. So we say it was we are not the country that we were, or we say that uh, our country has a has a has a history of racism, but we've grown a whole lot from that, and that seems to then suddenly post racialize whatever comes after it. And what I mean by that is that 
um, suddenly Trayvon Martin's murder is not seen as a continuation of or a reiteration of that violence. It suddenly becomes just a fluke. It becomes something individual. And so when we then think about George Zimmerman, George Zimmerman is not a murderer, a murderer who uh, 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 is represented through the continuation of a history of white supremacy. He's just the he's just a neighborhood watchman in an unfortunate event. And the same thing with my, with with Trayvon Martin. He's not he suddenly his body is not in, is not a, is not simply just a continuation. It's suddenly delinked as something that is is, is particular. And so, um, and so, one way of thinking about post-racial discourse then is to think about that it, it has this weird relationship to memory and to history. Mm-hmm. It historicizes by way of, of delinking it from its past, and in doing so, then it can be represented. And um, I think the, another way then to sort of think about this is to think about the history of memorialization in the United States um, for uh, a long period of time. To the 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 establishment of memorials to African American history was uh, distinctly um, one in which uh, there there was sort of hyper censorship of what could be represented, and um, we could always point to a sort of noticeable lack of memorializ of of memorials or of of historical representations. Um, but within the last um, within the last maybe 15, 20 years, we've seen a ramping up of representations, uh, specifically as long as they are of the civil rights, mainly Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, of slavery, um, and some of Jim Crow. Um, those are sort of the three three things that, that tend to get represented the most. Um, but we have to wonder that with the hyper representation of something, is that just another way to make it go, make, make the, the thing that we're representing go invisible. And so, um, and so I worried then about um, how in our society we can, we start to represent, we start to use representation as the mechanism through which we make things become decontextualized. Um, and particularly uh, the way in which, our uh, racism may, um, may might not simply attack at erasing uh, the past, but instead will hyper-represent it to such an extent that um, the representation itself becomes a, complicit, a complicitous moment in which um, um, we are in which we are we are effectively decontextualizing. Um, the the racism that we're trying to give an analysis of, and so as you put it, it's 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 through the representation that that suffering becomes more opaque. Yeah, I wonder actually, could could you say a bit more about that um, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, which is the subject of Chapter One? Because I, I think you you, know, you kind of pin down the idea that memory and a broader memorial culture actually is a is a form of forgetting with this example. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so I would say that I would say that um, the uh, McMor- the the Martin Luther Mc- excuse me the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial the um, Stone of Hope Memorial um, itself is the is is uh, probably the first post racial memorial and ought to be ought to be thought of in that in that framework. So. Um, 
the Martin Luther King Memorial, which is in Washington, D.C., um, you know, oddly stands w- w- relative to um, the uh, memorials to, like, to Lincoln and to Jefferson. Um, and, uh, you know, it's definitely a sort of uh, moment when we're, where we can see that, um, you know, 20 years ago or something like that, we might not have ever thought that you could, that we would have a Martin Luther King Memorial in Washington, D.C. Um, and so it definitely stands out as some, that something has changed in our society, that, 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 that there is sort of a moment of progress here. Um, the Martin Luther King Memorial itself is, uh, is composed of, a, of two parts. There is the um, a Mountain of Despair, which uh, Martin Luther King's uh, image is then taken out of, and that's called the, the part that, that stands out from that is called the Stone of Hope. And then there's this, there's the, there's the basin with, uh, his, uh, text with bits of his text scrawled against the scrawled on, 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 uh, on the walls, uh, that, that surround that basin. Um, and what's interesting about the Martin Luther King Memorial is that, um, on the one hand, we see this representation of someone who is from the civil rights, who is, who is the icon of the civil rights era. Um, and, where we immediately start to then think about, we immediately start to then, then think about that historical context and how that historical context situates us in the present. But the text, the text that are, that's written along the, the walls, also tells a different tells a narrative that's commenting on actively actively commenting on um, the need to be engaged with um, uh, the mode of oppression that we are confronted with in the present. And right after, right after um, the memorial was opened, there were many people who saw many many people, especially high school students, who saw the memorial. And the the comment that they said, which is strikingly striking and telling, is that the text the, that when they read the text, that it sounded like he could have been talking about now. And I think that there's something really interesting then about the way in which the 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 monument does two things, right? On the one hand, it sort of sets up a, a, a narrative of progress. On the other hand, it disrupts that in such a way that we have to start to think about why is it that, that the statements sound more relevant now than they did then. And I think that when what we have to worry about is that the post straight, that, that uh, when we're confronted with that conflict, we almost immediately then will say that um, oh, but it couldn't, he couldn't have been talking about now. It, this was so far in the past. And at that point where the, the memorial starts to, or the representation starts to act as a type of forgetting. I think that's the most dangerous part about post-racial, post-racial discourse and post-racial memory is that in its representation, in, its, in, in the act of memory, the memory itself starts, to, starts this process of forgetting. And, and this plays out as well in specifically in memorials um, that have engaged with uh, anti-black violence. Um, And you use Hope Plaza, um, both um, the object itself in in this memorial, but also um, thinking through the events that they memorialize as an example of of this this dual moment of memorialization and and forgetting. And I think that's a really interesting example that would be good to to hear a bit more about. Yeah. Um, hope so. Hope Plaza, sort of thinking about um, 
thinking about those things that we try to um, memorialize. Um, and Hope Plaza was was one of the one of the um, um, things that that when we were you know that that you know memorializes sort of the 1921 uh, race, the 1921 Tulsa race riots, and um, for a very long time, uh, um, that's that's been something that has been sort of um, um, actively actively repressed, and um, so much so that that that. Uh, that many people didn't learn about the Tulsa race riots who were from Tulsa. They didn't learn about them until much later on in life, until they were in their thirties or forties. Um, and still to the, still, it seems like something that is still accessing this kind of a hole in our, in our, in our, in our cultural memory. Um, but the, the, the 1921 uh, Tulsa race riots was probably one of the worst, if not the worst, um, most of or the most disastrous, uh, um, race massacres in the United in the United States history, and very few people know that much about it. Now, I want I want to qualify that right because I think any if you if you consult any text on this, they will say this is this is a this is a massacre. This is a um, this is a race right that was forgotten, and almost all of them will say that. Um, but. The problem is that it's not simply that it's been forgotten. Um, there are, you know, several books on the on 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 the topic. There is the Hope Plaza, right? There is um, um, the, there 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 are all kinds of there are all kinds of ways in which um, the, um, the the event itself has been um, memorialized. Um, and in 2000, I think in 2012, the first, it was the first year in which it was, uh, included in the history books, but that's that itself, right? That representation itself, uh, um, while being a, a, a move in the, while being important and significant, it becomes also post-racialized in the way in which the, rep, the, the representation itself, um, becomes yet another moment of forgetting, right? And so why is it that why is it that 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 uh Tulsa Oklahoma's race riot continues to unfold under the under the specter of of forgetting? Well, you know, I, I think I think what's what's interesting is that we have to look at then sort of the tactic, right? At, at, that that's applied to uh the forgetting that's going on there, right? First it's sort of just denial. And then it's just sort of adamant erasure now it's representation um it's not that we shouldn't represent it it's that we should be very very uh careful about the ways in which representation also also um also facilitates a type of forgetting um and um and so and so you know i so i think that 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 you know thinking about this within a post as a as a sort of post-racial limit to memorialization is a sort of is is, a, is the more correct way of thinking about it, and we should be very aware of then how um, questions about how how representations displace or decontextualize questions about our own actions and our own agency, especially when it comes to thinking about how we address and confront and um, make thematic uh, um, modes of resistance to anti-black racism. 
a final example we we might think about uh, before we turn to I guess kind of you know um, consider the more um, aesthetic philosophy elements uh, of the book that that come later in chapters four and five is is strange fruit um, and how um, you engage with Angela Davis reading of that uh, of that song um, to help us understand um, how we think about memory and its relationship to oppression. So what's your your, your reading of Strange Fruit. Oh, yeah. You know, Strange Fruit, I think, is, is a wonderful example of, um, I think, what we, we, we should think of. And Ange- Angela Davis is, is, is particularly astute to, to, to point this out. A, we should think of this as a long tradition, I think, within um, Black aesthetics of, um, of, of, of playing right at the edges of representation. Um, and so... Strange fruit. Strange fruit is a remarkable, um, remarkable example of, of of also what Du Bois um, points out at the end of Souls of Black Folk in in, in the Sorrow Songs as um, and as as an aesthetic of um, of sorrow or the, an aesthetic of sort of clearing the space of representation. So um, so um strange fruit is often thought of as a as a um as a song that is about lynching about someone who is lynched um and um the author of the song the authors of the song the author of the song um definitely is playing with the images of of a lynched body in the south but um, Billie Holiday's performance of the song plays with the silence or sort of silences every moment that would give you that, that, that would give you uh, the satisfaction of saying, and this is directly about a lynching. And so I think that, that so Angela Davis, I think is right to point out that this is a, this is a song about resistance. It's a, it's a sort of rebellion song. Um, and that it crosses over many different many different aesthetic elements. Um, but what I would point at, point to um, is that the song, if, this is what the, what Billie Holiday introduces into the song is that it becomes not just a song about remembering um, and responding to um, the most extreme forms of violence against blacks, the lynching, the practices of lynching in the United States. Um, it, it, it contextualizes that, but it does this weird thing where it, it, it decontextualizes our present moment as well. Um, the song is about the song, the song might, is, is employing the, employing the use, the, the images of lynching, but it's really about violence against blacks. And every time that she, that she the, the, in the song, she could, she could, say more or give you the image of make make concrete that she's talking about lynching. She follows the, she follows the, the, the lyrics with these long silences. And I think it's the silence It's that withholding of the act of withholding of a representation. And that is, that is unsettling to the point where it makes the present makes our present strange. And so it's really interesting that the song um, still has this effect of, um, of silencing everyone around it, right? And it still has this sort of this sort of interruptive effect, and um, you know, um, and Du Bois points this out in in the Sorrow Songs as as part of Black aesthetics. 
And he says uh, in the Star Songs, he says these weird songs that came that came down from came down to me from from um, um, you know from generations and generations and generations. What strikes him strange? What strikes him? What strikes him? They strike him cold now. He says when he hears them, he know, knowing nothing about music, he knows much about humans, and um, and knowing and knowing men, he says. I know that these tell the story of an unhappy people. What is, and what, so what's interesting about what he's talking about there and how this relates to strange fruit is that he says the word, he, he points out that the words of the songs were just, a, were sort of English approximations. And so they had lost. So in terms of their words, they lost their meaning, but what they tell us is, uh, is of a, of a people who have been broken from their, from their history. And, they they highlight the strangeness of the violence that they're still undergoing. They make the present strange in a very weird way. And I think that strange fruit is a sort of contemporary continuation of that aesthetic practice of um, of, of disengaging uh, a, a sort of a, a, a disengaging politically uh, in uh, representations, right? The sort of deployment and use of representations. By withholding exactly what we might we might supply ourselves through the representation, so and in that withholding, it, it keeps that meaning very fluid. And I think that that's sort of, that's that's extraordinarily important for us to sort of think about as we think about something like memory works. Like, so is there another aesthetic way in which we can go, which, in which we can think about um, the politics that are that seem to be sort of co-opting uh, representation presently? And I think there is. I think that what sorrow, what what uh, what Billie Holiday's point uh, in Strange Fruit tells us, what Angela Davis's analysis and what um, Du Bois's notion of sorrow tells us is that we can that that we should be looking for something that is not simply just representational, and that um, that that makes sort of larger claims about how we how we understand our political activity and our agency um, communally as opposed to um, uh, within our particular groups that last point you know the I guess the kind of um, political question um, of this aesthetic um, analysis is obviously a bridge to to think about Kantian aesthetics um, and also to an extent Franz Fanon's work, um, and that's you know re- really the, the kind of the the core discussion point for for chapters four and five. So I wonder if you, if you could tell me a bit about how you engage with Kantian aesthetics and um, and I guess where the book kind of leaves Kant after you uh, you've engaged with with his ideas. Yeah, well, Kant, Kant's, Kant's definitely a, a controversial figure within this context. Uh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for better or worse, right? Um, he's, you know, so, so what, what, what I found, what I think is, is, is important to sort of think about with Kant, sort of important to retain it with Kant is that for Kant, everything starts with the aesthetics and for, for him, right, uh, um, following Baumgarten, Kant's, Kant's aesthetics is, is distinctly a reference to, um, our sensibility about things. Um, what we, what we, what we can, what we, uh, what we sense, what we, the conditions for the possibility of what we can sense, the conditions for the possibility of not sensing things. And so what we can represent to ourselves and what we cannot represent to ourselves um, is, is all within the domain of aesthetics. And, um, and so, it's very, so, so it's very important to sort of 
think about what Kant then means by um, giving an analysis of what of the conditions for the possibility of what we can represent to ourselves. And his aim, as I take it, is not one is not simply a claim about what each individual can can what each individual's capacities are, but um, thinking about his work on, on anthropology and thinking about his work in in, in, in on politics, um, he tends to mean uh, a, rep- a, rep- a representation. And it tends to mean something that is that has some sociability to it. It has it has a social context through which it has to pass, and um, and then thinking about sort of race discourse as sort of traversing that same that same trajectory actually becomes a, a something something very something that we have to pay very close attention to, um, and and so Kant's Kant's um, aesthetics then um, I think has to be paired with or sort of seen also in line with or or, or at least in view of what he has to say about race. Um, and so, um, um, Kant, Kant was, a, Kant was, of course, uh, a sort of architect of, an architect of, of, um, of, 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 uh, intellectual racism, but, and there's, there's lots of, lots of folks talking about, well, how deeply does this cut? Does it go all the way down to his epistemology? Does it go all the way down to his moral philosophy? Um, uh, you know, probably, but. What's 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 interesting is that you can't really detach detach his what he has to say about race from what he has to say about aesthetics. Um, that being the case, right? We're, Kant saw Kant saw Kant saw a discussion about race, and uh, no matter how racist that discussion is, um, Kant saw a discussion about race as being as being central to uh, philosophy, um, and um, you know, and so so. He becomes a very honest sort of uh, confrontation with the intersections between race, politics, culture, and aesthetics. Um, so when I so so why why lean a lot on on Kant in this book is to, in the, in those chapters in this book is to say that is to, is to point out that for Kant Kant's aesthetics hinges on two different two differing types of aesthetics, the aesthetic of the sublime or the analytic of the sublime and the analytic of the beautiful. The beautiful um, tells us one discourse about the, about the absolute limit of representation. Um, what can we represent in its totality? And the beautiful itself is not a representation, but it is that condition through which all representations adhere as a unity. Um, and that seems to mirror what we're one trajectory of of, of post racial discourse, the sort of progressive trajectory. Unfortunately, the same phenomena that can be seen as as uh, being emblematic of the beautiful may also be the sublime. And what I what I was really interested in with Kant was that Kant is fascinated with the with cognition's ability to represent its own limitation to itself. So that thing that it cannot represent, that thing that 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 even when I say this, when, even when I say, even when cognition says this is a unity, it also can double as, but that that unity is only insofar as I can represent it, and that that's a limit. Um, Kant is fascinated that that one can represent 
the limitation of a discourse, the limitation of one's own abilities to oneself. And he calls that the sublime. It's a sort of sublime terror that all, every everything that every that 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 within every representation there is a silencing. There is a um, there is a point at which we cannot go past. Um, there is a point at which the the unity um, may simply be a disunity further on down the road, right? And I think that there's something really interesting about that. Now, the, uh, Kant then goes on to say, well. The, the cognition then ennobles itself by handling or managing or sort of closing off the sublime. And I wasn't so interested in that part of Kant. Um, but I wanted to follow out this, this, this point where the, the sort of breaking point of representations um, in, in Kant's aesthetics. And I thought that that was really interesting because it, 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 it uh, marks out a, a very different type of political discourse that uh, is more, uh, hinged on on uh, on that interruption of narrative or that silence within a discourse and um, and so and so so I do see a sort of continuity between what Kant suggests at various moments in his aesthetics and Fanon's uh, critique of postcolonial um, excuse me Fanon's critique of colonialism and the sort of necessity to, um, uh, to, to, uh, um, to, to, to think at, think at the breaking points of, um, of, of our cultural narratives. And, um, and so after Kant, I think what, I think what I, what I end up doing in the book is that I, um, uh, I, I on the one on the one hand I I, I engaged I engaged Kant's aesthetics. On the other hand, I tried to show that there is a reason to sort of break many of Kant's intuitions, and um, and so uh, from the aesthetic of the sublime, I wanted to to then rebuild a way of thinking about um, our aesthetic engagement with politics that is at that breaking point of representation that is able to sort of hold together um, the idea that we have a representation, but that itself is not enough. And, um, I, and, and that there's a way that we need to collectively organize our activity around, um, around, around those things that are, that are so great that we cannot actually represent them. So great tragedy is something that we cannot represent, but, that doesn't mean that we cannot mourn, and mourning is is it becomes a very important term in the book because mourning is not just a practice that one undergoes by oneself. Mourning is a practice that one takes up in a community, and as such, um, it itself is not about just the representation, but about the practice. And I think that what with post racial discourse so heavily focused on representation the sort of counter move is 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 not to have counter representations but to have counter practices and so um a, a practice of mourning which is a communal effort i think is is a move in that in that direction and so an example of this might be something like <laughs> when Sandra blonde was um, murdered in Texas, or was found dead in Texas, in the Texas cell, 
what would it mean to to um, not just have um, folks representing the tragic, but to have a community claim that death as a death of their own, and to pra- and to and to initiate a practice of mourning that that uh, um, honors that, that honors the gravity of that of of that of that violence. Um, and I think that's 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 something that we continually have to have to uh, rethink is what's going on not just with the representation but with our own practices and um, in what way is uh, is a is a is a practice of mourning uh, missing from uh, much of our activity and and that brings us um, into the conclusion of the book actually with that you know you you've touched on this. Um, quite a bit in, in your discussion of Kant but that question are, that, that you pose actually about how to keep uh, these practices of resistance alive as, as living practices but mm-hmm. referring to um, as you describe it the formative violence of our context so I wonder if you could um, point towards the kind of yeah the, the, the keeping practices of resistance alive as a way of uh, of giving a sense of the conclusion of the book yeah um, so uh, so a lot of a lot of what um, I was interested in what I, be, what I was uh, talking about in the book too. Sort of is framed by this question that starts that, that starts from Judith Butler's uh, work, where she says um, we have to we have to think about the violence that frames us. How do we know the violence that frames us? And I was again very interested in kind of reworking that question within the within the context of anti-black violence, um, but in the Instead of looking, instead of looking simply at uh, the discursive limits, right? I think that, that um, what we're what we're pushed to do is to sort of rethink our agency and what sort of counts as agency and what sort of counts as complicity, right? Um, and this ends up being sort of an open, and I think an open, an open question because we have to. I think we. I think what we have to have to. Think about relative to post-racial discourse, and specifically within the sort of post-racial limitations of, me- of memory or memorialization, is that um, many things that look like practices of resistance um, through sort of assembly or through organizing or through um, 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 uh, representation may actually be sort of um, just the representation of of, of resistance, but that representation itself may be complicit with, with the furthering of mechanisms of oppression. So uh, one way to think about this is that um, um, organizing and protesting and, um, and collectively acting, that's always good, but um, it, may be res- it may be responsive to, or it may be using the tropes of, um, of, 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 of an outmoded form of oppression. Um, one that's geared towards erasure, displacement, and sort of actively actively ignoring a population or or, or people suffering. If the if the if our current mode of oppression um, is geared around accepting, um, representing, acknowledging um, that oppression, then um, then those responses are actually actually become representations of resistance, but they become actually complicit with the furthering of our current mode of oppression. And so I think that at the end of the book, what I'm, what I, the question that I'm really trying to highlight is that 
that that our our agent the that the problem of our agency is one that we have to continually and continually renew and to sort of think about in reference to uh, what mode of oppression we are currently confronted with and i think that um far too often when we see something like an assembly of of, of folks protesting a type of injustice that somehow we think that that is that is the moment of our agency and i worry that that's the moment in which we are just representing our agency and and communally we need to sort of think about what sort of practices continue um, continue a sort of resistance to our current forms of oppression. Um, I don't think that we can do that without highlighting the intricacies of the way post-racial discourse works. Is this something you'll be taking forward in, in, in future projects? Obviously, uh, we started by thinking about how timely the book is, um, but is this a kind of ongoing um, philosophical agenda for you, or are you switching to something kind of completely different uh, now you've written the book? <laughs> um, yes and no for both, I think. Um, you know, um, so um, in terms of thinking about agency, I think the question of agency, the question of community, the question of um, the limitations of our, of, our, of our, our representations, those are all things that I'm still actively engaged in. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to uh, doing more. Um, post-racial discourse. Um, um, is something that I am um, that I that that the book is about, and so um, at some other point I'll probably take that up. But so the projects that I'm currently working on are now sort of thinking about and rethinking about the place of African genocides in our cultural memory, and um, so I'm working on two things: uh, a collection of uh, an anthology that um, highlights the the way in which. Um, African genocides have been decontextualized, um, and then I'm working on my own, on, a, on a second book that is um, looking at um, the hermeneutical problems of trying to interpret um, uh, African genocides outside the context of the Holocaust, outside the context of sort of European genocides, and um, in in uh, in in my own. Book pro- in my second book project, again, questions of agency, questions of race and gender uh, uh, formation, questions of identifying violence, um, questions of what it means to be uh, po- in a post, post-genocidal community are all at play. And so, um, so I am, but, I, but for the next project, I'm shifting gears to sort of think, um, think about the problem of, of colonialism I think rethinking decolonialism and sort of thinking sort of about global politics and definitely aesthetics is, uh, and an aesthetic analysis is driving it because, um, that's kind of where, uh, that's kind of where my background is. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David Bryan. On this episode, I was talking to Alfred Frankowski an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and African American Studies at Northeastern Illinois University about his new book, The Post-Racial Limits of Memorialization Towards a Political Sense of Mourning, which was published by Lexington Books in 2015.